0: I wish I had a pilot and a podcast. wish I had a strong donkey that can haul ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars Scabs. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. Yeah. I wish I was a comedian. Late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth, you can help me wish, but I would rather wish for helpers. Like it's like. I wish I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. I wish I wish that every time we do it it feels just like this. I wish I wish that every time we love and it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It feels. Wish I had a time machine. Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew from a lime bean. I wish that I could spread my wings. Nah. I wish that I had seven limbs. Yeah, that way I'd hold on to everything and laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things. I wish I spoke fluent Spanish. Dimelo, dímelo. At least I kinda understand it. <laughs> wish that I could throw the deuce like gambit and get so large I could play pool with the planets. Yeah. I wish I was an astronaut. I wish I knew more classic rock. <laughs> Focused on myself. You can't help me wish, but I would rather wish for help. It's like, it's like. I wish, I wish. That every time we love it, it feels just like this, like this. I wish, I wish. That every time we do it, it feels just like this, like Wish, I wish, wish, every time we
1: move and it feels just like like this. Hello, cats and kittens, and welcome to another episode of the debrief. I'm your host, Brianna Joy Gray,
0: and it's off
1: to a big start of a news week, I guess. Of course, on today's episode, I spoke to Joel Rubin, who was Bernie's 2020 Jewish outreach chair, about these protests that have been ongoing in Israel in response to Benjamin Netanyahu's efforts to take over the court system and make the only kind of opportunity for uh, checks and balances obsolete for reasons that I think Joel did a really good uh, job of explaining and that I wasn't familiar with, about how the Israeli government is structured. So we had a conversation about what those protests are all about, whether or not there are any opportunities there for the left, whether given There isn't the same kind of distribution politically among young people and old people in terms of their politics and their progressivism as there is in the United States. What does it mean that so many young people are out um, protesting a move that is ultimately conservative in nature, despite themselves being conservative and and how to potentially exploit an opportunity to harness those pro-democracy interests in opposing Netanyahu into interests that also include the rights and interests of Palestinians And we also got in a little bit to what the kind of left's approach should be to Israel-Palestine. This has been a really important, um, divisive concern people have had around the Marion williamson campaign, pretty understandably. Um, But I, for one, have been really confused. I, I see the criticisms, and I think that they're valid. At the same time, I think there's been a real failure to articulate in the alternative what people would like uh, a left position to be that isn't you know, progressive except for Palestine. So we talked about that a little bit as well. So I am um, happy to talk about all of that. And also, obviously, we have the Trump indictment news, which is all that's on anybody's mind, it seems. I uh, joined Russell Brand on his show today, and that was the focus of at least the first half of the programming, and we got a little bit into it. Um, so I'm curious to know what you guys think about it all. Uh, Apologies in advance for my low energy. I got hit with a crazy bout of food poisoning last night and am barely vertical today. (laughs) Um, So this is going to be a relatively short uh, episode and I appreciate your guys' patience. So let's start with you, Nathan. What's on your mind tonight?
2: Hey, Bree. I know I had a similar experience about a month ago with food poisoning. So I know. Really? I understand. Yeah. It was not fun.
1: I, f- I feel like I grew up overseas. I have eaten a lot of things in a lot of places and never, ever, ever got food poisoning until it was almost exactly a year ago. I got it after a trip to Boston hmm. and I was laid low. Like I thought I was not going to be able to make my flight at home. And I was so disappointed in myself because I thought I was made of sterner stuff and I thought I had an iron stomach. I had never had this experience before and not having it happen again within a year is really bumming me out. But I'm gonna try not to um, make a human biological response to food into a weird ego thing. <laughs> I thought I was above food poisoning. I'm working on it. Uh, are you Are you well recovered, Nathan? What do you think caused yeah, yours?
2: I have no idea. Um, there was probably a couple things, but that's the first time I would had it also, and I was like, mm. "How is this happening?" It's like, and yeah, it was not fun. But anyways, the the last time. I kind of did a primer as well. So this time I think I'll do the same thing. Did you hear um, have you ever heard of the term stochastic terrorism? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, so that's, the mm-hmm, go ahead. Yeah, so this is something that I want to ask your question, ask you about, because you're a lawyer and so was Glenn Greenwald. And he did a clip on his show about this, and he did in my mind a pretty good deconstruction. Of this stochastic terrorism. And essentially, what his argument was is that stochastic terrorism is not a concept that's worth considering because someone cannot be held legally accountable or, you know, or much less accountable in any direct kind of way, you know, like a direct link between someone's speech and someone's actions if there is no call to action. And I would agree with him because. The really powerful example he gave about sarcastic terrorism, or you could say like indirect inspiration of terrorism, just in case someone doesn't know what we're talking about, is that he gave the example of a lot of pro-trans activists who were calling what was happening in Florida and other red states with their laws a genocide. And then very conveniently, I'm not saying they're connected, but very conveniently for a certain demographic. They have the Nashville shooter that happens a couple of weeks ago. It's almost like they're going to get. It's almost like stochastic terrorism is a double edged sword. Do you see what I'm laying down?
1: I mean, I see what you're saying. And so first I would say that I don't think it's entirely about what people are legally culpable for. I think that sometimes these conversations are only divisive because folks force them into a legal context where obviously, yeah, like. The the legal standard for what constitutes incitement that would get you on the hook for causing somebody else's murder is incredibly high. And so I don't, you know, that's why they've come up with a new term. They're not saying someone is um, saying something that's been an incitement to violence and that they're not protected by the First Amendment and they have to go to jail. They're saying stochastic terrorism because they're saying you're asking the question whether certain kinds of rhetoric ultimately informs the choices of folks to go and do bad things. Now, of course, it's true that people can draw inspiration from all sorts of stuff as they choose to do, do bad things or things that the original speaker might not even agree with. Right? Mm-hmm. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're responsible, certainly not legally responsible. But I think it's, it's perfectly fair. To, like, I'm sorry, Like sometimes I think they were all like, not asking me common sense. If I went online and told someone to kill themselves, like, you're, you're being annoying on my mentions, fuck off and die. If I said that to someone, and the next day they committed suicide, I'm not saying it's my fault. I'm sure they had a lot of other stuff going on in their life, because the average person gets told to fuck off and die on the internet every day and doesn't kill themselves. But would I feel bad? Yes.
3: <laughs>
1: I'm a human being, and like the I would feel bad because I would wonder if some part of what I said contributed to pushing them over the edge to do it. That doesn't make me responsible it doesn't make me legally responsible it doesn't make me entirely morally responsible but i feel bad because i have ethics and morals and i understand that there, there was something wrong about my behavior now that's like I, I think that it's case by case basis right like i i do think that it's perfectly fine like i like look hyperbolic language is the norm when people are trying to um support of their causes mm-hmm. and i also don't know that i necessarily think the, the volume and nature of the anti-trans legislation that's coming down the pike does not to me, it does not seem unwarranted to use words like genocide. Not not that a genocide has occurred, but when you look at some certain parallels between how people are talking about trans folks and how uh, folks that are talking about Jewish people in the lead up to the Holocaust, like it's, it's, it's very disturbing. It hasn't happened yet, and who knows what is going to happen? But it's very disturbing, and people drawing those kinds of parallels and warning folks about how it's not going to stop at trans people, where they start start right. talking about the kids, and then it broadens to all this other stuff, and now suddenly you can't wear pants in Tennessee if you're a woman. Like it, it gets to be like it is. It is clearly a slippery slope. We don't have to anticipate it being a slippery slope. We're seeing an escalation in rhetoric and legal consequences right now. Mm-hmm. And I I think that some trans activists saying that that's happening does not make them responsible for a random person choosing to shoot up innocent folks at a random school or not. It wasn't random to them, but random to the trans movement or whatever.
2: Yeah, I would agree with everything you said. But it seems to me that what you're saying would naturally lead to just be calling it irresponsible use of language or uh, or um, or immoral speech as opposed to. Calling it terrorism, because if you call something terrorism, then you unlock this whole, this whole Pandora's box of things that you don't really want to open up. Or at least I would think that any person on the left or the center or anyone who's generally anti-authoritarian would want to open up the the T-word box.
1: Language is applied selectively to make the points that people want to make. Mm-hmm. When white people do things that are terrorists in America, I mean, we all, we've all seen the meme. What even gets counted as terrorism has always been very, has has been narrowly constrained, even when it's very um, traditional acts of terrorism, right? We don't call, I mean, e- even the idea that we have the words like hate crime versus like terrorism. I mean, like, whats is, what what is terrorism? The idea that you're doing things to coerce, you know, to, to target a population so that they're basically frightened into not acting or not being someplace or not practicing what they believe or or, or things like that, right? The whole point is you're trying to strike fear into a population to get a desired outcome. And what, oops, sorry. What is a hate crime other than doing the exact same thing, targeting a group that's been historically marginalized for that same outcome? So, that, you know, one might even ask, why do we? why don't we call that terrorism? Why do, why do we typically not call what the KKK does terrorism? Why don't we call when the four little girls are bombed in that church bombing terrorism? Like, we don't. Right. You know? And so, like, I, I guess I'm I'm resisting the idea. If someone has, has decided to come up with this term, which I personally don't use, I, I whatever. But if someone has decided to come up with the cur- term, stochastic st- st- terrorism, I can barely even say it. Stochastic terror, terrorism. Stochastic Try to make the import, the significance of a certain kind of, in this case, legal targeting of a specific group, more visceral for folks who are talking about it. Like that's, I think that's a perfectly fine choice. And they're going to have to deal with the fact that they might be end up in a a semantic fight about whether or not that term is useful or not instead of talking about the underlying issue. But that is a that is like a communications issue that everyone has to figure out. Like, do, do can they win? Are people pushing back against the term because they're Mad that it's effective, or you know, who, like who like who cares? Like I, I don't think that anybody can credibly say that folks saying like trans, you know, trans people are under attack. You know, no one's saying if someone said trans rights are under attack by six-year-old kids at an elementary school, go shoot them. I would say that's ridiculous and wrong. But I'm sorry, like the jump to trans people are under attack to somebody. Having a completely untargeted act of violence is wild. Also, I don't know if we learn more about that shooting. I I haven't really followed it since the last time I was on Rising on Thursday. I've been, like, not paying attention to the news, which is my right and privilege on the weekends. (laughs) But it seems like the shooter felt a personal issue with their school. No?
2: No. Potentially. I also heard reports that they had gone to a different school and that they had gone to that other school, which could mean that they were targeting the school because they knew it was a Christian day school or they just targeted a school that they thought would have laxer security. It's hard to say at this point.
1: Well, we'll see what happens with a lot of these school shooters. It's like they had a shitty time in high school. And so they go and they shoot their high school. Right. They felt bullied. They had a shitty time. And there's a lot of things that can make you have a shitty time in high school. And one of those things can be being a trans person at a, tr- a Christian school that doesn't respect your right to be trans. But that, I don't see how that's different in character. Like, if I'm bullied at high school because I'm a nerd, if I'm bullied in high school because I'm, like, um, neurodivergent, you know, a little different than the other kids, you know, is it, is it oh, God, we got we to gotta not ever talk about um, people on the spectrum because if we talk about the issues that people on the spectrum face, then it justifies them shooting up a high school. Like, it's ridiculous.
2: Right. I know when I was, I have a, I don't know if this is a unique experience or not, but I had a really diverse group of friends. Well, not so much racially because the town that I went to high school in was over 95% white, but as far as the other identities, they were diverse, you know, male, female, and all that stuff. But the point is that there were people in there who everyone knew were devout Catholics or some, something else like that. And there were also people in the friend group who are bisexual or lesbian or or transgender or something like that and everyone just got along because we just had this understanding that you treat someone with respect and dignity regardless of how you feel about any beliefs or choices that they have made and 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 and, and, and you just don't use authoritarian means or use violent means that's what I was that that's what I learned anyway I don't know how common that is but I feel like that approach would really help a lot of people on both sides or on every side, because there's more than two sides, just starting from the first instance, treating people with respect and dignity.
1: Yeah. I mean, I can't, can't argue with that, but the last thing I'd say on this topic is that I will confess to being skeptical at times of people who I think over, over, how should I put this? Yeah. When there have been, let's say, revolutions or slave uprisings, let's take the Haitian Revolution, and there have been those moments where the oppressor class has been met with violence, The American Revolution. I mean, there's any mm-hmm. number. We, and from the perspective of history and victory, will say things like, oh, yeah, like no one's like... If, if some, you know, British person's family got killed in the context of the American Revolution, you know, no one's sitting here saying, the, you know, no one's writing the history books saying Americans were evil, brutalistic and wrong to fight for their freedom because, uh, you know, a kid got killed in the context of it. Like this is, you know, but you do notice sometimes when people talk about the Haitian Revolution, they would be like, oh, but they killed all the white people and that was so wrong. It's like, okay, well, they were literally being enslaved and their kids didn't have any semblance of freedom. Mm-hmm. For generations, but like, what is what is the focus here? And I think that sometimes what ends up happening is, I, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm saying I'm reluctant to completely buy into this idea that like all violence Is bad, and we have to be it. like it's pe- what what we will make political efforts to do things nonviolently as much as possible, and mm-hmm. then in the response we are being treated violently, whether it's in the context like slavery and Haitian Revolution or whatever, or whether it's you know, the diseases of despair that people are suffering from, the eight, the life expectancy gap between affluent men and poor men in America, which is like a 15-year gap, mass incarceration, all of the ways that violence, you know, is heaped upon the American public every single day. And people will be like, well, no, don't fight back. And I think it's a really delicate line because the whole point is that we're trying to do revolutionary things without being violent. And then we do property violence and that's called violence. And eventually you get to this point where it's like, I think the question is going to be deciding ethically what the line is as opposed to saying that there is no line. Because I do think that when you say there is no line, you're, getting, you're, you're allowing other people to do violence to you with impunity. And you're buying into this characterization that the violence is one-sided. You know, mm-hmm. George Floyd gets killed. A police station is burned down. And those things are treated equivalently. A, a life in a building. Mm-hmm. And I don't know. I I I see where some of this rhetoric is going, um, and I and like this. Well, I'll criticize One Six if you criticize Antifa. Like mm, I I I think that sometimes <laughs> the co- the everyone thinks that it's okay when it's their cause. That's just the reality of it. Like everything's a lot of stuff is okay when it's their cause, and it seems to be targeted to to a, an agenda that is aligned with them. And I am reluctant sometimes to give up the. the strategic value of being willing to fight fire with fire. And this is that kind of like Malcolm X versus Martin Luther King perspective. The existence of Malcolm X and the, and the threat of there being a more organized militarized pushback to white supremacy made a compromise position that landed on the MLK style of activism seem more palatable to those who might otherwise not have compromised with MLK. Right. So yeah, this is maybe a little too far far afield, uh, but like, yeah, that's part of why I'm reluctant to give it. Like if, if there's a rhetorical battle being fought over what is terrorism, you know, and what is violence, I, I understand that there's this like this weird wishy-washiness of words where we're like black bodies and black and violence against the body and like this weird kind of academic way of talking about violence. Mm-hmm. But if we're literally in a world where hundreds of anti-trans laws have been passed in this year alone and it's like April. Or been been put forward, if not passed, and like if someone wants to call that stochastic terrorism, yeah, like I I'm not gonna die on that hill. I might not choose to use that word because I don't want to get in a semantic battle, but like there are people who are actually doing terrorism, <laughs> and I'm not gonna get I don't know I'm not gonna get caught up in like left punching over that. Me personally.
2: Yeah, I'd say we don't really have enough time to kind of flesh all that out here. I would just give a really quick example of the French protest. You, we, we saw the videos of them, uh, of firefighters fighting with police officers, mm-hmm. who, the fi- firefighters who were supporting the everyday working people of, of France. Well, the police are agents of the state. But if instead it had been videos of them attacking random Macron supporters who are just trying to live their life. I think people would feel differently. The other minor thing I would say is, um, is that I think everyone should go, should, should should go listen to that clip. Uh, I I think it's on YouTube, but it might not be. As far as I know, it's, it is though on Rumble of Glenn Greenwald, giving his detailed monologue about his problem with the term stochastic terrorism. And I think a lot of people would find it very persuasive. I mean, he is a constitutional lawyer, so it's maybe a little bit more uh, credible coming from him. But, yeah, that's that's probably the most we can get to in this episode, I'm guessing.
1: Yeah, well, feel free to drop the link to that in the chat, Nathan. I, I will calling when you. I have some time. I'm sorry?
2: I will when I have some time.
1: Okay, cool beans. All right, take care. Keep the faith. Yeah, you too. Bye-bye. T, what's on your mind tonight? You with us, T? Can you unmute yourself? Hi, can you hear me? Loud and clear, what's on your mind?
3: What's good, Brie? Uh, long time, first time. Uh, Who beans. I thought so. I'm uh, an Aquarius sun, Scorpio moon, Virgo <laughs> rising.
1: <laughs> okay, oof. What's your relationship like, life like, T?
3: <laughs> I got out of a long-term relationship of a year and a half ago. Um, with a uh, cancer, it did not work. Uh, although we really tried to make it work for a long time.
1: Aquarius and, Sun, uh, Scorpio Moon, Virgo Rising.
3: I should say I've been in a, a long-term relationship a little after that since last year, and it's it's been about ten months, and it's been real lovely. And she's a Gemini, and I think it just works better with uh, two Apollo air signs. Air sign. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. I can see that. The issue with Aquarians has always been they're just this, like, you guys, like, turn it off. Like, you're, like, very noncommittal and will just decide, just decide not to be interested in someone. As a Leo who values loyalty so much, I find that to be very um, inexcusable. But
3: I, I think that's a fair point. I have a group text with uh, two friends from law school who are also Aquarians, and we joke about Aquarius memes a lot, until one day one of us pointed out, are we just... Avoidant, insecure. Mm-hmm. It seems like to to be the common thread of all of the memes.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that feels kind of. I mean, we all have our our struggles. And Scorpios. I wonder if that. I mean, I'm not that good at this stuff, but the Scorpio, Scorpios do tend to be like. I mean, they'll get into some, some dramatic, mutually dependent uh, relationship situations, mm-hmm. and there'll be like a tether there that is not entirely always the best but i wonder if that is that counterbalances the what can be a kind of a flakiness of aquarius anyway let me stop this before everyone gets really mad at me <laughs> we're talking about astrology too much
3: what is on your
1: mind substantively tonight my Aquarian friend
3: um i had two um uh guest recommendations that should really start as questions because even though i said long time first time i'm not an all-time first time so i don't know everybody you've spoken to Sure. Um, so have you ever talked to Maurice Mitchell? He's the current national director of the Working Families Party.
1: I haven't. Uh,
3: did you see his? Do you know who he is? Or Of
1: course. Of have, course.
3: You've seen his recent article in Forge magazine um, titled Building Resilient Organizations.
1: I have not.
3: Um, I thought it was really dope. It's about um, a, a lot of the, I think, sort of Problems we experience in the milieu of the left generally, but he applies them to organizational sustainability and takes on a number of, of what he calls sort of definitional issues and diagnoses them and provides solutions. So some things include um, what he characterizes as, um, for example, the left's preoccupation with a culture of resistance and uh, resistance to institutionalized power.
1: Say more about that.
3: So I, I heard him speak at a panel at a conference recently on, on organizing on the left, and he said a whole bunch of profound things about this, where the, the crowd, you know how in like left spaces or in movement spaces, people do the thing where it sounds like they're enjoying food, but they say, hmm, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so that was like the entire audience, the entire time he was speaking. Um, and he, he talked about how the, the left has a really um, well-developed ability to you know pose the contradiction in his words or you know, uh, pose the question but not answer the question. We don't have the power to um, resolve the contradiction. So, even though the left can do a great job identifying the problem or revealing the contradictions of police brutality, that contradiction is ultimately resolved by those in power with body cameras and tasers.
1: Hmm. Um, so, like, I'm happy to I'm happy to talk to Marissa. I think it could be an interesting conversation my last kind of exposure uh, was in the context of the 2020 campaign where WFp's choice to endorse Elizabeth Warren despite her having no electoral viability was deeply frustrating from the Bernie campaign's perspective and I remember in particular an interview that he gave um, on one of the cable shows, where, when he was asked, in which he was asked about the endorsement process. And if I recall correctly, maybe someone in the chat can jog my memory, there was something that happened where it wasn't like a the, like an internal direct vote because that would have put it for Bernie. It was a kind of an undemocratic decision-making. Hmm. That felt like part and parcel of the whole bullshit that was happening <laughs> um, with the Warren campaign and how everybody just, it, it felt, it started at a certain point to feel like, a, like an op. And I would have liked to have seen like in the interview, it felt like he knew better and was struggling to articulate a rationale for why WFP was doing what it was doing. And I almost felt sympathetic for him because he was like a deer caught in the headlights and clearly struggling with an irrational choice that had been made. But ultimately it was his responsibility. And it was his choice to go on TV and like stand by that decision. For sure. So I would be interested to talk to him for a lot of different reasons. But I will confess that that is my um, lingering frustration.
3: <laughs> I, I appreciate that that's your approach. I mean, I, I, given what he wrote about in this article and the way he was talking at the conference, I mean, I, I didn't know he had, had worked or with the, the WFP at the time that endorsed Warren. But you know, now I'd be curious to see how he practices those, those politics or at least his ideology.
1: Yeah. But thank you for the recommendation. I'll, I think that could be a good discussion, frankly, now that I think about it.
3: Can I make one more um, yeah, question slash recommendation? Are you familiar with Jane McAlevy?
1: Yeah, she's been on. Um, I want to say it's probably like two years ago now, and I have uh, been writing to her periodically. Almost every time a union something something goes down, yeah, yeah, I reach out about her coming back on, and there have been scheduling conflicts and other things, and she hasn't been able to make it back on. But gotcha. I continue to reach out, and I would love would love to have her semi regularly.
3: Oh, well, me too. Yeah, I, I thought of you, um, when I saw her, her book um, about mass organizing in, in unions or mass participation in unions, um, because you've talked a bit about how, or at least you've suggested that some of the challenges on, on the institutionalized labor movement side might be due to corruption or abuse of power or to, to undue hierarchy.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I'd, I'd love to have her back on. And you should um, go back and listen to that old episode in the interim if you are interested, because I think it was a good one.
3: Okay. Thank you. I appreciate that.
1: Thank you, T. Thanks for calling in. Keep the faith. You too. Biden, not Biden. What's on your mind this evening?
5: Hey, what's going on? Um, Not too much, actually. Uh, A couple of things I wanted to kind of float by you. But um, first of all, congratulations on uh, single-handedly saving the campaign of Marianne Williamson. (laughs)
1: Stop. What do you mean?
5: What do you mean? She's up in the polls now. She's now made it to double digits in the polls. She's at oh, 10%. Wow. So, um, your, your continued uh, engagement with all who come at you for uh, your unwavering support of Marianne Williamson, I'm sure uh, is. Wait, wait
1: a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. I like. I. I I I personally adore Marianne Williamson. I personally would choose to vote for her in a primary. But I want to be really clear. I haven't actually endorsed or supported Marianne Williamson in any way. That's the irony of it. Like I think it logically makes sense to obviously vote for the most progressive candidate in a Democratic primary. That's you have no, it's a democratic primary. You can vote for only democratic candidates. And then if you want to vote green, you can have that opportunity in general election. That's the argument I've been making this entire time. And that's, I don't know if you're being tongue in cheek by it, but like I, at no point have I been like, give money to Marianne support. Like, I think that the, I, I push back against what I think are unfair criticisms of Marianne. Right. But I have hardly been a booster. Like that's what's so fucked up about this scenario. Like you can't, say a single true thing about the person. If I said Marianne has a cute blazer on today, people would uh, accuse me of secretly working for her campaign.
5: No, okay. Well, I am being tongue in cheek, but <laughs> only halfway, right? Like I'm, I'm definitely being chug in cheek. I know you haven't like come out and endorsed her. You don't even talk about her that much. It's just that a lot of the times on the call and people end up having things to say about it. And sometimes uh, the things that they say don't make much sense, but I do think that from having all of those conversations, at least, uh, you've changed, you've probably changed the minds of Marianne Williamson just from making the, I guess, the argument as to why it makes sense for her to be running at all versus what's the point of having an uncontested primary. Um, mm-hmm. But that, you know, like that being said, I also think that if Marianne Williamson was wearing a cute blazer, we would all acknowledge that Um, (laughs) because she could definitely, she's, she knows how to wear a blazer. Um, She's also got like, it's interesting because I am seeing an appeal that I didn't see with Bernie, with Marianne, Um, not as much personally, but that crowd of people who were in that Oprah block is real. Uh, I did not realize she had, celebrity really outside of her mm. political run, Uh just because I'm you know not I'm usually, her
1: demographic.
5: Yeah, you know, I think uh I'm sure it's there's some really great stuff in there. Uh and I have been known to dabble in some, you know, Dao De Ching and some fun, you know, some let's let's get a little weird up in here. Uh and that's kind of the vibe I think she's supposed to have. It's I don't I don't know like a self help kind of vibe, but yeah, I haven't read any of her stuff.
1: Uh, I mean, I haven't either, and I need to um, rectify that. But I, I think that there's a way that people characterize her as a self help guru in an effort to minimize her. I think that you know there are other kind of uh, uh, spiritualists or philosophers. That are I gotta say it male that don't get characterized in ex- in that same way. It's not like she's writing books that are like ten ways to love the Aquarian in your life. You know, right. <laughs> How, uh, you know what 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 to expect when you're expecting. It's like her books aren't that like yeah. traditional yeah. self help fa- fare. So, if she
5: had written ten like, um, ways to love the Aquarian in your
1: life, would you have read it?
5: <laughs>
1: um. No, there's no so loving Aquarians. You like, said what? <laughs> I said, no, there's no loving Aquarians. LOL, sorry.
5: Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I wasn't appreciating the Aquarian, the anti-Aquarian <laughs> uh, slander there. Uh, when when I do think it's uh, it's more of Leo's, uh, you know, just really thinking a whole lot about themselves that they don't even notice when the Aquarius is drifting away into the okay. wind. Okay.
1: Well, they can the- drift all the way away, and <laughs> the Leo will rebound as they do yeah. because they love themselves. So, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think I, I I have been surprised over time. I think I I don't know if I said this last time on the chat, but I was at my grandmother's, who like, you know, I, I, my grandmother's like a a hippie. I don't know. She I there are there is, she's not like a, a news following, you know, person. Okay. Um, and I mentioned casually Marianne Williamson, and she perked right up. And was like oh I love Marianne I was like how the, on earth do you even know who that is and she points over to her bookshelf and there's like four Marianne Williamson books over there and she's like you haven't read these take one like and I've I've been out with Marianne and had like wait waitresses and you know cooking staff and stuff come out and like be like oh my mom loved your books or I loved your books like it, it's been actually surprising to me because I'm I also was not familiar with her from that milieu at all and so I do think that there is a part of the country that she can reach like regret regrettably, though, that part of the country like that watches the view and like maybe could be facilitated by kind of women's facing networks. Those networks have been so antagonistic to Marianne that the natural simpatico, you know hasn't really emerged. So like yeah. I, I did see that tent that poll that had her at ten percent, which is incredible. I saw another poll today that had her down at 2%, but frankly in a cluster with a bunch of other people who were taken much more seriously, who were also around 1% or two or 3%, including Amy Klobuchar. We all know that if Amy Klobuchar had run, everyone would be taking that, would be taking her campaign very seriously. And she'd probably get another New York Times endorsement, LOL.
5: Yeah, but I think I do think that is probably starting to die down. Like, the degree to which uh, sort of, uh, I guess, mainstream media, or whatever you want to call it, has a monopoly on candidates and on who they want to endorse, and also on on trust and even audience capture. I think there are a lot of indications that those advantages that they had for a long time are fading. And in a weird way, um, you know, in the post-Trump era, people are, maybe this is anecdotal, but, I, well, it is anecdotal, but I find that people are a lot more willing to uh, criticize the media, criticize mainstream narratives to not believe in, uh, just everything that they're hearing on TV. So I Mm -hmm. think with a candidate like Marianne Williamson, who already has like an established, uh, audience or an established, you know, she has a reputation that precedes her candidacy, even if I'm not familiar with it. Uh, you know, maybe that's a a little more of an X factor than I thought it would be originally. So
1: yeah, I think her biggest problem is getting in front of people so they know she exists and that she's even running. And also this ridiculous, pernicious 2016 era bullshit of, oh, I like her, oh, I like him, but I don't. You know, he's not going to win. So like that just it makes me so insane because it's so fucking illogical and and self um um like uh. Self creating, like self, it creates a reality. Well, self fulfilling. Sorry, that's the word I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah,
5: self fulfilling. Yeah. Well, look, I mean, to I don't think it's a mistake that people. I, I guess I'll put it this way. I get frustrated at people for thinking that, but I don't think it's a mistake that there's this constant sense of powerlessness, or inevitability. Uh, the sense of you know it's inevitable that my contributions or our actions or anything will not change an outcome. Uh, I don't. I, I think that's kind of been sort of uh, developed and and pushed upon us over time. Um, I think it's more of a result of like propaganda and. Uh, isolation and and a general sense of hopelessness.
1: But I'm not even talking about like non-voters who don't participate because they're not, they're used to not having a candidate that, you know, speaks to them or whatever. I'm talking about reliable democratic party voters who are definitely going to vote who will say, Oh, I, I prefer Miriam or like they said, I preferred Bernie to Hillary, but will fully having articulated that preference, go and pull the lever for Hillary or Biden because reasons there's like literally Zero reason. Like if, if you thought if you really liked Bernie or Marianne but thought that they couldn't beat the Republican nominee, I would argue about you with that about that with you. But at least that is like a reason. That's like a that's like a strategic position. But what people were saying back in twenty sixteen wasn't like, oh, I don't think that Bernie was gonna beat Trump. And there were many, many polls that demonstrated that Bernie had a better chance of beating Trump than Hillary Clinton. So that was just like a, a logical argument. It was this weird nothing argument this triggering insane like nothing argument that like it's just not practical well why well it's just not okay but why why well, yeah i like bernie but like you know he's not gonna win why not why do you think that and i can feel that happening with marianne especially with these leftists who all love bernie and who just like and and again i would understand if there was someone else in the race if we were having a conversation about which leftist candidate to vote for yeah obviously but I checked, and it's still just Biden and Marianne. So, like, it's, 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 to me, it's, like, ridiculous to even talk about it. It really merits no conversation. As as long as it's Biden and Marianne, I don't have to know a thing about Marianne. Marianne can be, you know, strangling chickens in her backyard, <laughs> you know, and, and and, you know, I don't know, doing some horrible other, I don't know, immoral thing. And she's still miles better than Biden than the Democratic primary. And I would vote for Marianne now in the general it would be a different, you know, it's a different calculation once you get past the primary. But we get to pick the primary setup, and that's it.
5: Right. Yeah. It, it, it doesn't make too much sense, I suppose. I guess it's I mean, I always wonder when people say uh, maybe I'm reading too much into people, but I always think whenever they say something like, well, uh, it's not practical. Even if they don't know how to articulate the argument, I'm just assuming that what they mean is, oh well, won't win a general a general over Biden, uh, or won't you know whatever because it's it's weird to just say it's not practical, and then there's nothing else, right? Uh, because that I don't know, I don't know. People people are weird. The, the things are weird. But um, I I actually before I start talking about Marianne, I did want to talk about um. Some of the episode, but some of the, um, I haven't been able to watch all of it yet, but really just uh, trying to get your thoughts on if you have been thinking at all lately about uh, the utility of courts and the utility of, of uh, a constitution, because I don't remember the last time you spoke about it, but I I think You've mentioned before that you know you're kind of like, well, the Constitution's whatever. We don't we don't necessarily mm-hmm. need one. Screw it. It wasn't made for us. It wasn't really. The Supreme Court has a history where they've you know done a lot of dumb shit more than they've done some awesome shit. But uh, yada yada yada. Um, I mean, that's not a good summary of your argument, but I, you know. Uh,
1: yeah. So Rob- Robbie brought the- brought this up on Rising, like. You know, you. Some people on the left have been arguing for court reform anyway. So what's the difference in Israel? And I, and I think that for one, having no other checks and balances, having no bicameral government, having no, having a a, a parliamentary system that elects the um, prime minister who also appoints the supreme uh, support, appoints the judges, gets you in a place where it's the same people who are making all of the rules all the time. And there's absolutely no checks and balances. And while I am deeply frustrated by the Supreme Court's political choice not to respect, um, you know, kind of Bill of Rights-style principles from time to time.
5: Right, right. or to, to, to apply inconsistently the principles which they purport to uh, right.
1: At, at least they got to jump over that hurdle. And with the way it's been happening in Israel apparently is that the courts have been the last um, bulwark uh to protecting some Palestinian rights and some minority rights in the country. Right. That's just apparently, you know, you, to that, you know I'm not an expert, but that, that apparently has been true. And so that being the case, it it's scary to folks about what happens when that, that last bulwark goes away. Now, I also, and I, I don't can't remember if I said, said this on the show or afterward to Joel, but to me, part of the issue isn't the lack of a constitution because I think that you, you know, many countries have common law systems and it's not necessary necessarily to have a constitution, but these kind of foundational issues. And I think that he alluded to this, like, you know, this, this the, the lack of constitution being basically a compromise between. Some of the re- more religious founders of the country, uh, who wanted the Torah or biblical, te- or, you know, religious text to be the basis of a constitution. Right. And others were like, mm, I don't know about that. And so you just like don't do anything at all. And the default constitution is kind of the Torah, but like not really, but it kind of is. And so, you know, what is, what is that having left that void means mean for everybody who isn't Jewish in the country? And how, what does that say about the, basic rights and how they're going to be extended and meted out for people who aren't Jewish. Um, you know, like to me, to me, it's almost more about that than the absence of a constitution in and of itself.
5: Well, I, 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 I would agree, but I do think that the constitution, uh, I'm starting to think that in a way for those who really believe in it, uh, especially in our courts, to some extent, or believe in some version of it, it's almost another form of a decentralization of, of power or another form of, um, uh, It it is another form of sort of abstract authority that someone could begin to look to and come to principles, which are maybe not what they would typically do, or you would typically expect them to do, um, if all they were thinking of were were more political considerations, um, I know that sounds weird. I, the example that's coming to my mind right now is with this this appeal for the Donzinger case. Um, you know the the uh, Stephen Donzinger. Everyone here knows who Stephen Donzinger is, but he wins this big judgment for uh, just these tribes in the Amazon against Chevron who are polluting and and dumping waste into their lands, uh, wins multi-billion dollar judgments after Chevron and all those lawyers force them to go litigate this whole thing in South America. Uh, They pursue contempt of court charges up here in North America. A bunch of different stuff happens, but basically they go to a judge who appoints a private prosecutor to prosecute Stephen Donzinger. He ends up serving the longest sentence ever for contempt of court in the United States. Um, something that's supposed to be capped out. I think it's, it's either three or six months, but he's on house arrest for over a year. And then he has uh, the, the, he had to have, actually had to go to prison for like a month or something, and then was only released early because of COVID. And I, I think I'm getting that right. Is that right, Bree? Something along that. Those lines, something right? like that. So, so Stephen Donzinger had a case that was up for appeal, Uh, basically trying to appeal this contempt of court charge. And the Supreme Court was deciding whether or not to hear it. And the Supreme Court decides they're not going to hear this case. So they're going to say, you know what, it's actually okay that this district judge in New York appointed a private prosecutor to pursue claims, especially where or even where the the uh, federal prosecutor's office uh, decided they weren't going to pursue these claims. Uh, But the only people who are dissenting to this decision and saying, no, it's actually unconstitutional that the uh, judge appointed a private prosecutor are Gorsuch and Kavanaugh. Mm -hmm. And when you go through and read the reasoning, here's Gorsuch you know, saying stuff like um, going over the the precedent of uh, stuff from people like Scalia about how, like, the Young case and uh, these other cases which talk about when it's okay to confer executive authority and when it's impermissible. And Gorsuch writes a dissent to... Uh, a writ of centurari. I, I've never known how to say that, by the way. Certiorari. I don't care. I Like, fuck it. Who cares? That's why everyone
6: but, just
1: says cert.
5: Cert. Exactly. But I, I'm not Latin. I'm not going to speak it, okay? <laughs> um, but I, first, I, I didn't even know you could write a descent to a writ of cert. And it's actually pretty good here. And it makes me wonder, well, what would cause Gorsuch to... Like, first of all, you don't know, like sometimes these people surprise you with some of the shit they do. I'm not saying that makes everything else that they've done okay, or that this means the system is good, or it's working or it's functioning. But I find the idea of someone being able to write a dissent and come to it from like a weird principled place where if they are actually trying to be principled towards some kind of abstract document, it sort of creates one more layer of something that they at least have to justify to themselves that they hold important. Like so, something that they hold important, they have to justify within the confines of that thing too. Right. And that would be like the Constitution here. And it actually makes a lot of sense. So I don't know. I'm still, I think I'm, I think it might be useful for us to be pushing for systems which make it really hard to centralize power and if those systems get in the way of a revolutionary movement of some kind you're having a revolution anyway so if you're having a revolution anyway then shouldn't the goal be to create as or or to, to create as many barriers for uh a consolidation of power by those you are revolting against while at the same time bolstering your ability to uh, build up that movement to uh, have the revolution or have whatever big changes you need to be made. And then you can reform the systems as as needed. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think decentralizing power is important. And I think that's, you know, that's exactly what's going on or what people are concerned about in Israel. Um I do also think that there's values in having stated principles that become part of the cultural fabric, because then if people try to undermine them, even if they are able to write a legal justification or whatever that you know enables them to move forward despite its you know clear violation of those principles, at least you're making people do that, and you're making them basically very publicly go against principles that have become a part of the fabric of the cultural values in a country. It's why, you know, I think the bill of rights has a value outside of its legal authority. I think that every politician who gets up and has to, you know, the the healthcare is a human right. Those kind of things ring true and have power because not because they're like legally enforceable, but because folks who believe, things to the contrary are forced to be very plain about what their priorities are in a way that can lead to kind of electoral uh, consequences and stuff down the line. It's why the United States doesn't sign on to the universal declaration of the rights of the child and all of these other international treaties, partly because we don't actually provide basic things to children like, you know, guaranteed healthcare or whatever, but also because um, I think that they hold a lot of um, rhetorical and psychic value for people who do want to, change the country yeah so yeah i, I agree with all of that cool <laughs> yeah
5: okay well then uh i don't know i've just been thinking a lot about that lately and i i i don't know maybe there's maybe there's a place for that uh yeah
1: well look i, I have to look more closely at um that decision and maybe we'll have Stephen back on to discuss but i yeah, appreciate definitely. you bringing it up tonight Biden.
5: yeah for sure definitely definitely check it out um and uh yeah it would be cool to have steven back on anyway just to see how he's doing and what he's involved with but uh cool well thanks for taking my call and Th-
1: thank you for calling everyone. all keep right on. keep the faith bide all
5: right
1: sure bye bye um Matias, what is on your mind tonight
6: hi can you hear me
1: mhm loud and clear
6: um I, I was thinking about the, uh, the episode and I, um, I don't know. I just wanted to, to vent my spleen about certain things in the discussion of Israel. Sure. So, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you did bring this up. It's not like, uh, I mean, you know, I think it's good to say, but this, this whole notion of like, oh, Democracy is under attack. Our democracy is under attack. It's like for for half the popul for less than half the population, right? I mean, it's an apartheid state. So, I I find it I find it very hard to be sympathetic, even though there is clearly like a you know a judicial coup in the works, right?
1: Mm-hmm.
6: And I I don't know that that kind of that underlies the whole problem that i have with this discussion it's like there's no there's really no recognition of the status of 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 israel right it's like oh there's a there's a conflict we need to to have there be peace it's like i i don't i don't think that anyone would in good conscience say oh well the, uh, the apartheid state in South Africa and the African National Congress, they need to, to, to create peace between them. You know, it's like this is in any other morally equivalent situation that we look to in history, it would be like repulsive morally to take a, like the kind of, um, you know, aloof stance towards the just like blatant, um, you know, like. Uh, Kind of like you know the cast that they've created here, right?
1: So what I mean, how would you like it to be discussed? And do you have thoughts about you know, if you were if you were president of the United States of America, what kind of solutions <laughs> would you be pushing? Like, I'm not trying to be uh, yeah. funny or gotcha, but like th- this this is kind of my frustration with the whole thing. I think that much like immigration, when leftists talk about immigration, they talk yeah. a lot about what they don't like. I don't like that Title 42. I don't like kids and kids. I don't like, you know, like, and I'm not, like, I don't mean to say that dismissively. I also don't like those things. (laughs) Those things are bad. And it's perfectly legitimate and good to talk about the things that you don't like. You know, I don't like that, you know, Gaza is an open air prison. I don't, I don't like that Palestinians don't have full rights in the law. I don't, I don't like, like, obviously, like, Mm. we we talk about those things. But, like, when, when Marianne got pushed back for wanting a two-state solution, I found myself a little lost because I just, I, I don't, I don't know what it is affirmatively that the left is wanting in this moment. And and this is again, not a gotcha. I'm not trying to be glib at all. And I am fully owning my own ignorance here. This is not my issue area, but I've been begging for someone just to articulate an affirmative vision. And I think it's legitimately hard. And when things are legitimately hard, it can become very easy to just like be negative and have all this infighting in a way that is ultimately destructive to what could be a kind of a shared goal but someone yeah. has to do the hard work of like coming up with what, like, and I thought I said this to to Joel afterward. I was like, there's a whole other part of this conversation that like, I'm, there are questions that I am, I'm frankly just too scared to act like uncomfortable to ask. Cause I don't know where the third, the third rails are here. I just, I'm not as familiar. And it, and I think that does a, a disservice to the left and people who are solution oriented and wanting to engage if, even in our own kind of spaces there's like a prickliness or like a t- you know a touchiness about offering like what is it okay, what is okay to even such I, I don't i don't know so like yeah. you, you tell me like what what's on your mind and how would you like for these conversations to go differently
6: all right first of all i totally agree i think it's a lot easier to criticize the way that things are going than it is to uh, affirmatively propose something else especially because you know, no matter what you say, especially around something as charged as as Israel, you're going to piss off a lot of people. I mean, you know, if I could personally snap my fingers and like create a, um, you know, a solution to their, their their whole situation right there, I I would want it to be a single state where everyone is granted equal rights and representation. Right. I think that, you know, the likelihood of that seems Pretty fucking slim because the, I, I, the, the reality is that a lot of the Israeli population doesn't really seem to want to to do anything about their um, their relationship with the Palestinians. Right. Like, uh, again, something I take issue with, but I think it's it's not incorrect to characterize the relationship as like this trauma relationship. I think I think that that is, again, a little bit. um, You know, putting, oh, it's both sidesy a little bit, but, you know, they they think that they're at war. Right. And I I don't know. It's it is almost the kind of situation where. I. I I think that the only thing America can do is put like hard conditions on its aid and stop giving them fucking weapons to, you know, to keep. Doing what they're doing, because uh, I mean, I suppose there are, there are people that would say, "Oh well, America's an or Israel is an American colony," a Freudian slip there, but uh, you know, I we we can't actually just say, "Oh, you you need to reorganize your government." Uh, I think that the the conditioning of aid is the only like really immediately practical way to address it. I mean I, I don't know I mean that, I, I, I'm not an expert
1: either so no no, no. I, I guess my question is I mean I think that that it seems like a necessary starting point but does that get you the kind of f- more f- final solutions that you're we're wanting here right. I mean <laughs> America stops giving Israel aid and then they're like are they oh yeah JK we're gonna do you know full rights for everybody living here and Free Palestine, really? you know. So yeah, I, I guess yeah. I and I, again I'm not trying to put you on the spot. I see people in the chat saying neoliberal tears. Neoliberal tears is not in the calling queue. So you guys, you've got to elect yourself into the calling queue. Um, <clears throat> but you know what? What? What would you like to see happen?
6: Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess I'm Jewish. I'm 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 a cultural Jew. You know. Um, so I, I personally, I suppose this is like in the most solipsistic way, I would like to see American Jews stop supporting Israel with such, um, blind faith. You know, I think that it is, it is disgraceful and it is disgusting. And, you know, when I hear my dad you know, his parents were kicked out of Austria or, well, you know, mm. he fled Austria. Mm-hmm. Um, and his, you know, his family that um, his relatives settled in San Francisco, he and like his parents went to Mexico. He he'll like, call them and talk, you know, for them. Anytime anything happens in Israel, it is the first and foremost concern that there is, you know, secure that Israel has the ability to defend itself and that there is a secure home for the Jewish people—it bugs the hell out of me. And it's like these are these are in quotes like liberal people on any other subject, but they start to you know they start to sound like fucking Netanyahu being like, uh, well King David three thousand years ago declared Jerusalem the mm-hmm. capital of. It's like you are living in fantasy land. This is fantasy land. Nowhere else in the world do people make make such political claims mm-hmm. nowhere. So I don't know. I guess this is perhaps this is like a uh, just being very annoyed at uh, at other Jews where it's like, my God, how could you be like this? But I don't know. I, <laughs> that is that is a lot of my my feeling around it comes to like, my God, how can you be like this?
1: yeah it's it's, it's difficult I, I, I said this to Mary and I don't know if I've said this on the show or not I can't remember where I've said anything at this point I have a great deal of empathy for the idea of wanting one's own state that is foundationally invested like the, that's whose purpose is, in, is protecting the identity that has come under such persecution, like as a black person, (laughs) I certainly can relate to, shall we say the, the exhaustion of feeling like my own home country has historically been so hostile to me that it would be nice not to have to deal and to just have little black America somewhere where I wouldn't have to deal but that has never been the posture. I mean, apart from these little frolics and detours like Liberia, men, men, much of that, by the way, was about trying to get black people to go somewhere else less than like a sincere desire of them to have a yeah. place of their own and, you know, the horrible things that were done to Liberians and all of that. You know, it's not great. But, you know, that has never, like the the, the idea has never been that to be safe, one must necessarily have one's own country. And generally speaking, that's not the posture we've taken about my, minority rights in this country or anywhere else in the world. And I, am, I hear people, I hear you know, someone like Marianne articulate why that is so important. And I have both an emotional um, sympathy for it And also because of that emotional sympathy and because of having some, you know, empathy, you know, some ability to relate, you know, a real kind of rejection of it, I got to say, because it isn't my own, my own community's posture to things. And maybe, you know, there's an argument it should be, but look, what is the natural consequence of that way of thinking? What kind of balkanization do we do across the whole globe, you know? Right, Is there a black right. state? Is there a trans state? Is there a, like, what, where does it end? Cause, you know, I, I just, I, philosophically, I really struggle with that idea, even if emotionally I empathize with it. Do you know, you know what I'm saying?
6: No, I, I know very, very well what you're saying because, you know, my dad, his family was communist. He went to live on a kibbutz for a little while. I mean, it was mm-hmm. very disillusioning to him. He always, he tells me very frequently, well, not very frequently, but about, uh, you know, how there's like the field and the person whose job it was to tend the field essentially hid in the middle of the of the grains, the taller grains, a section where he was growing watermelons to sell for himself. It's like, OK, ha ha ha. It's not working the way you think it is. But, you know, his because of his background, he does have that more. Uh, like empathetically you know oriented like he 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 strongly identified or like at least used to with the need for that to exist and you know i was listening to an interview with norm finkelstein yesterday Mm -hmm. he he also you know same generation i really empathize with where they're coming from you know it's like you have something so so traumatic traumatic happen and You know, you, you, you have, you have this kind of reaction, but I, I do agree. It's like, this can't be the answer because you just end up with, I mean, you know, a different kind of um, ethnostate, Mm -hmm. you know, and that's, Mm -hmm. that's the real, that's the real perversity of, you know, the 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 state of Israel, in my opinion, is that it, you know, goes from being what in many ways is a very natural reaction to a horrific, you know, genocide to in many ways recreating the exact fucking mentality of fascism.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Yeah.
6: So, I, I mean, I don't know. It's not. And I I guess this is this does kind of fall back into, like you said, the whole like, oh, just the the negative critique without offering a a positive alternative. But I do I do I do agree with with your point that it's like if you choose this route as the solution to difference. You're going to end up with like a bunch of little um, very, very self-interested states That, Mm -hmm. you know, we'll have very little problem doing nasty things to other people, you know, the the populations that they have chosen to um, exclude from the social contract, Mm -hmm. whatever, whatever the basis of that may be.
1: Mm -hmm. And that's I think that framing there about the social contract is so important as we're to go back to Biden's question about the, the relevance of a constitution having an explicit social contract that includes everyone. We all know we're American and our declarations of independence and all of that, it's all bullshit. Nobody acted on it, but it's there. It was always hanging there. All men created equal. It was always just hanging there. Embarrassing (laughs) (laughs) until we acted on it. You know, and I think there's something to that. I think there's something to that statement of ideals, a, a, a public social contract, because abolitionists use that people fighting for rights use that. Um, because you know there was this obvious gap between stated ideals and reality that folks could ex- exploit, and I think there might be some benefit in Israel to have have something similar. Say out loud, you know, having to say out loud what you really mean. You know, one one section of the population is more equal than another.
6: It's not great. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, sometimes so, sometimes yeah. all it takes is to articulate an idea for it for it to become uh self evident how how absurd it is.
1: Yeah, for sure. Well look, I've really enjoyed this. I see a lot of people want to get in here. Neil, um Dylan, I'm gonna bring you up. Thank, keep the faith, Matthias, I really that was yeah. great. Dylan, you're up and Neoliberal Tears, feel free to weigh in as co host.
4: Alright, cool. Yeah <laughs> me and me and Neoliberal Tears are probably gonna talk about the same thing. Can you can you hear me, Brie? Yes, Dylan. Go ahead. Alright, cool. Um, I am a ardent anti-Zionist, so I made sure I got in the queue really quick. Mm -hmm. Um, (laughs) um, But um, I watched your your episode today and my main thing is I was watching it until he started talking about how Israel is a democracy. And I just everything he said after that I was just listening for you Mm. everything he said just went out one ear and out the other because his opinion was completely invalidated in my opinion um for calling an apartheid state and um a democracy so anyway so let me see i got i have like whole bullet points and everything here yeah (laughs) so yeah go ahead go ahead all right so um like for one thing like he said that I think he only mentioned that it may be an apartheid state or it will become an apartheid state one day. He didn't even mention that it was an apartheid state the entire time. Mm-hmm. And uh, he's mentioned something about the protection of private property or something. Like, why is that important to you? It's to kind of shows that he was. Yeah. But anyway, so it was good comparing that to another interview on the protest. I listened to recently on Breakthrough News. Um, It was just the other day. It was um, Rania and Eugene interviewed this guy named David Sheen. And um, he's an an actual – he's in Israel, but he's an anti-Zionist. And he talked about the – he talked about the protests. Mm -hmm. And it was just interesting seeing the anti-Zionist perspective and between what I would say that your guest was – Kind of like a the left, left as far left as you can get in Zionism, but still a, still Zionist. Mm-hmm. It was interesting seeing the different perspectives because what um, David Sheen was saying, and um, it was just a few days ago, it was on their um, their weekly live stream. If anybody, it was their last one. Uh, it was like the first story. If anybody wants to go listen to it, but um, what he was saying is he it's infighting between the israelis and what he said is that the palestinians are not supporting this at almost at all and when they do come to the protest they're they're they've actually been beaten and fought when they do appear in in these rallies and has have anything to do with Like if they have a Palestinian flag, if they have anything that has to do with Palestine, they're just – there was this video I saw of this Palestinian getting beat in one of these protests Mm -hmm. because they had a Palestinian flag. And it just kind of showed the mentality of this is that – how I kind of see it, these protests is – I mean like your guess, I think he has a very good good point and everything like – to me, of course, the you know the Netanyahu side is the worse side uh, than these than these protests. But at the same time, how I see it is, it's like the it's like the U.S. Confederacy and they're infighting each other. It's almost like a civil war in the U.S. Confederacy, but they're not. What they're fighting about is some dumb thing that doesn't have to do anything with slavery. They're talking about some, like, thing with the, the courts. So, Dylan, help me
1: understand this, because is it not the case that the courts have been kind of a last bulwark against some, you know, anti-Palestinian laws and that it, it it's left, it's, it's more left than the population as a whole? And is, you know, is yeah. that not something that Palestinians are all invested in, or is, is it so, like, marginal that folks are like, well, I'd rather just see it all and then defend some aspect of this, dem- this so-called democracy.
4: Yeah, that last one, it's so marginal that Palestinians don't really care that much. They maybe care just, a, seems like they just care just a little bit. And they would rather just, they don't really care. And actually, one thing that was interesting in the interview I saw with um, David Sheen was that there is actually a, um, a positive aspect in regards to Palestinian rights, um, to the court actually even being, um, reformed or whatever, is that one of the main reasons why Israel is able to get away with a lot of their war crimes is because their court system is so respected, um, And because they're not, because it has to do something, he explained it, basically because they have a legitimate court system. They can't go to like the International Criminal Court or another Hmm. country. When Israelis go to another country, they can't be arrested for their war crimes or anything. But if that court goes away, then Israelis, they're right to not get arrested for war crimes goes away Mm. so that's kind of a yeah the the court does do some good with palestinian rights but at the same time it's also protecting israelis from being arrested for war crimes when they leave overseas um And just in just in general. So that's, that's, that's one thing. But yeah, that's kind of how that's kind of how I see it. And um, I'm, yeah. Oh, and, and, um, Mm -hmm. yeah, there is one other thing, um, because you were talking about, um, and your last, the the last caller was talking about, and you asked them what the solution for Palestine is, if you Mm -hmm. want me to get into that, I would love to get into that.
1: (laughs) Yeah. Okay. I I want you to hold that thought. Let's get neoliberal in Surely. here, and then maybe we'll not yeah, maybe no, definitely we'll going. circle kept, back to that.
4: I kept going. Okay. Yeah.
1: But Neil, are you going to co-sign what Dylan has said, do you have anything else to add to that aspect of it?
7: Hey, besties. Um, what am I asked <laughs> hey. to sign? Excuse me. This is a trap. Um is this the of I didn't. What I didn't say I anything signing? bad. Don't worry. <laughs> oh, no, Dylan, you were wonderful. Um, I, too, <laughs> would love to get into I'm going to get into the One State Solution because you know who I'm going to bring up? Edward Said, <laughs> um, long-time hero of mine, a mm. prolific writer who wrote in 1998, he wrote an op-ed for the New York Times, and it was called The One State Solution. Um, and the idea behind it is so straightforward oh my god you're not gonna believe it um but free i feel like you are already i don't need to israel explain to you i feel like you've i mean all of your radar is about palestine and apartheid on rising um trojan host horsing bill mar i feel like you know you know way more than i think you give yourself credit for um and i thought um yeah so i think that's the solution Another little fun fact that I wanted to throw out there about the court system and all of that is that corporations in Israel have really taken an issue with the getting rid of the Supreme Court stuff and, you know, allowing parliament to overturn them because corporations love stability Mm -hmm. and having a Supreme Court is sort of like a a check for them as well. Mm -hmm. And and having sort of um, a simple majority in Congress be able to overturn any precedent that's bad for their bottom line um, Mm -hmm. because it can, the parliament can, I mean, Israel had, like you said, um, like Joel said, um, like five elections in five years. So, so it's kind of a mess. Um, But you know, um, I, I, so I, I, I don't know. I, from speaking to my sister, I feel like there's more potential to radicalize the, the zionists than ever because their rights have been taken away and threatened um has well, it been- that's, that's
1: what's so interesting to me so I, i'm like i'm hearing i'm hearing what dylan's saying about how you know the interests of the israelis that are protesting this like crisis of democracy as it were are not the interests of palestinians who feel like there isn't a democracy to begin with and like I get, I get that time. at the same time it does feel like an and tell me if I'm wrong, like an opportunity yes. to and, capitalize and- on that. Uh,
7: um, you, brought, you brought this up to- with Joel. Like mm-hmm. Netanyahu was um, like proposing also discrimination in businesses against LGBTQ people. He's going to, he's that's part mm-hmm. of the reforms that he's proposing is discrimination, uh, legalizing discrimination. If you're gay, basically that's like another concession that he gave to the far right. Mm-hmm. Um, and guess who that's radicalizing? All of the secular Jews that live in Israel who are very queer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, and is it sad that it's come to that? Sure, that, that you need to basically be threatened with your own rights to care about others. But when I talked to my sister, who was also protesting out there in Tel Aviv, like, she considered herself like right wing, right? Like, mm-hmm. I know, very cringe. And... Um, <laughs> But this is the first time where, like, I, I mean, I brought it up to her. I was like, isn't it kind of hypocritical that you guys are, like, um, talking about democracy and yada, yada, and, like, Palestinians mm-hmm. live under martial law, like, and have been for decades? And and she was th- the first time in my life, like, she actually said, like, yeah. Like, you know, mm. people are fed up in this mm. Like, th- th- things aren't going well even for them, like, the Zionists uh, – liberal jews and they've been there they the secular jews never got along with um the orthodox ultra fascist right that's another thing i would throw Mm. out there's been beef um and now the beef Mm -hmm. is uh multiplying the Michigas. yeah
1: (laughs) that should have been the that should have been the episode title yeah
4: Okay, Dylan, what do you, what yeah. do you say, think about that? Yeah, no, no, no. I I completely, I, I haven't really heard that perspective. So that's kind of interesting. I mean, you know, still, I don't think, I feel like at the same time, um, I feel like liberation for Palestine is not going to come from their occupiers, which are Israelis, regardless of how, you know, awaken they are, regardless of anything, it's going to come either from the Palestinians themselves or outside pressure. So I think while it's good that some Pal- uh, some some Israelis are being woken up to the reality of Israel, um, I still do not think it's going to mean a lot when it comes to the liberation of Palestine, because... I mean, you've got to think: what is what? What do Palestinians want? Palestinians, because this, this goes to what I was what I was going to say about how the, about the um, the solution for Palestine, um, like what ne- neoliberal tears said um, with the Edward Said thing, which I kind of think is I haven't looked that specifically up. It might be what I'm thinking. I don't know if it's from Edward Said or not, but basically, a one Palestinian state. And regardless of how awoken these Israelis are to how bad Israel is going to be, are they going to still be okay with a one Palestine state? All of this is going to be. Yeah. Is-
7: they're gonna. But that's the thing. They're gonna have to be because anything other than that is racism, right? Like that's. The I thing. mean, I, like, I hear you like,
4: guys exactly, no, no, but
7: what this what feels like say,
1: quite a leap. I mean, no, Israelis no. are going hard in the paint over here with the full-on Star of David on the flag. <laughs> like, you are asking... This is, like, a huge, like... The, the no, no, no. national it, it, identity it is. is so much about being a Jewish state.
7: Yeah, but How do you get but to a place... what are saying by Jewish but they, state... Oh, look,
1: is I, I know! You don't have to argue Jewish with me state. about it. Like, it sounds...
7: No, no, no. A Jewish state means that you want to maintain Jewish majority, right? You want mm-hmm. to deny voting rights to the majority because that's the thing about the one state that uh, Jewish Americans, frankly, not even Jewish Israelis, those are the ones that have gotten the most pushback from because mm-hmm. they want their own Jewish state that they can visit on vacations in the summers okay mm-hmm. but yeah. I when I explained it to my sister that yeah it just means that a Palestinian would have the same voting rights that you do mm-hmm. and guess what that means that means that Israel like because there are more by the numbers there are 8 million Palestinians and uh, almost in total and close to 8 million Jewish people the Jew the, they're afraid of no longer having a political majority mm-hmm. but that has to be okay because if you're mm-hmm. engineering a majority in the Knesset or in Parliament a Jewish majority you're gonna guess how you do that by ethnic cleansing by mm-hmm. importing jewish people from brooklyn like jake tapper mm-hmm. who can move there tomorrow while rashida's family can never go back
1: mm-hmm. therefore she's
7: forbidden from going yep. back
1: did jake tapper really move to israel
7: no but he could because if you can prove that you're Jewish, you could move mm-hmm. there tomorrow, and you would get paid for it. Mm-hmm. That's what. That's why. That's my beef against the the, the two state solution mm-hmm. needing to be having a Jewish state. Which, by the way, if we're going to give Israel a Jewish state, they're going to have Jerusalem. They're going to have all of the religious sites, and mm-hmm. Palestinians will have to be ethnically cleansed from where they live today. Mm-hmm. That's 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 yeah. basically saying I want to have a religious supremacist ethno state, like Dylan was saying, and that's so, not okay. Because yeah, people I don't they, they, only, how we got they only want. Them.
4: Oh, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Go ahead, Dylan. They, a, a two state solution just means apar- an apartheid state for half of the country. Right, that's all that's that what means. I was gonna ask. Like, how do we get to a place where the, a two state
1: solution seemed to be like the it's normal? I'm un. un uncomplicated not uncomplicated but like
7: talking point there are a million settlements already they keep building them and you know who builds them palestinian labor they have to apply for a work permit and they get paid 50 percent from within a jewish construction worker does i mentioned that on katie's call-in they're building up the settlements that they'll never be able to live in because they're not jewish how fucked up is that it's like, extremely fucked up. I'm, yeah, I'm. I'm tired of anybody saying, "Well, I'm just gonna go to Bibi and I'm gonna tell him, hey, watch it.'" Like, like I'm sorry. Go, go ask yourself <laughs> if you really think that that's gonna change anything. And you know, and I, I'll, the last thing I'll say, bri and I don't think you knew this, but the, the trip that Katie Porter took to meet Bibi Netanyahu and say, "Hey, what's going on?" and they talked about gay people. Mm-hmm. They were sponsored by J Street. Mm. Yep. Yeah. And, and that, so I'm sorry. They, I've, I mean, I, Joel. I thought he was so cool and like in the beginning because he was framing the protests in ways that sounded right to me. Like maybe he was radicalizable too. I mean, I'm telling you, I've never had this much progress with my sister. But yeah. like, but like, and you know, when would, the way he was talking about, like, you know, he was right about the unions playing a huge role. Like my sister was taking one day. They, they, the unions let them take one day off of a week of work for three months as a protest sign. They allowed them to do that. That's huge mm. organizing on the ground, and I was like, "Oh my god, Daddy, we need like we need hot, sex, you know, sexy people <laughs> to talk about this in relatable ways." But like, I mean, the two-state solution—the stuff he was saying—could have been taken straight from the '90s. And yeah, he, let me ask you guys this: a trip to meet Bibi Netanyahu three weeks ago, not even yeah,
4: so, yeah, and, and he didn't ahead, mention that, it was, and he didn't even mention. He didn't even say for sure that it was an apartheid state, which at this point is like literally the middle ground.
1: Yeah. Well, what do you – oh, shoot, I forgot what I was going to say. There's something about – oh, what do you make of Bernie having supported a two-state solution?
4: I think Bernie's was the same problem. He Mm -hmm. was – I consider Bernie – in the same reign as Marianne mm-hmm. and um, what was his name? Joel says the mm-hmm. last name, for, um, but in the same thing as them, they are liberal center left Zionists, but they're still Zionists. And Zionism supports the ethnic cleansing and apart and apartheid state um, of Palestinians. And, and occupy Palestine. So mm-hmm. you can be as left as you want, but if you still support Israel, and even if it's a two-state solution, if you do not support the liberation of Palestine, then you still support um, occupation and colonization. I mean, you may not may say, oh, yeah, apartheid is bad. I, I condemn apartheid. All right. Congrats. But I mean at the same time that's just literally the the bare minimum
1: uh, and that's what the I, I just, go I, ahead i'm sorry neoliberal
7: sorry i mean uh sorry bestie i feel like you're tired and i don't want to like
1: no 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 this is so good like this is so yeah. useful I, uh, and informative for me
7: honestly I'm glad. the I'm glad. electoral yeah. campaign that i've felt not just in love with but like aroused by like passionate <laughs> like on the in the streets Honestly, it was like Jill Stein in 2016. I loved Bernie in 2016 mm. from my little cubicle job in New York City, um, and I was listening to Democracy Now on the DL, working at the mayor's office. Nobody knew, and I felt. And then I transitioned real quick into the Jill Stein 2016 as soon as Bernie conceded. Mm-hmm. And I fucking love her because she called out apartheid Israel right then. Mm-hmm. She was Jewish. You know, mm-hmm. and I I supported Bernie kind of reluctantly in 2020. Like it wasn't, mm-hmm. he didn't meet me on that issue. And mm-hmm. I should have had better standards because the reality is the movement moved past Bernie at a certain point. Mm-hmm. In 2016, he won 23 states. In 2020, he won six. Mm-hmm. So I think, and, and there was another, I, I was going to tell you about this. There was another poll that just came out that talked about how the majority of Democratic voters for the first time, are on the, are 48% supportive of Palestine as opposed to Israel,
6: 38%.
1: Well, let me ask you about a poll I like that, because you, th- yeah. this is where I think, um, does Israel have a right to exist that like framing, that's where it starts to do a lot of work. Because I, I think if you drill down and let me know if you feel differently, what they're really it saying,
7: like Ukraine have a right to exist. Like, why are you starting from that off? Like, you're right. starting off from yeah, exactly. I think
1: the, the subtext of it is like, should there be a Jewish state? You know what I mean? It's not like yeah, guess, Israel, I, a country that's called Israel, where yeah. everyone has equal rights under the law. I mean, like, I mean, I understand yeah. why people might not want to call it Israel and call it Palestine. Like, I, I'm not, you know, but yeah. you know what they're really what the what it, it sidesteps, I think, a conversation like the conversation about what it means to have
7: a Jewish, state, a, an ethno state. Of yeah, right. Because yeah. yeah. that's what I, it is. That it's, yeah. it's an ethno state. It's and it's yeah. it's going to have to happen by force. Like you don't get a Jewish majority, a religious. Are we calling for a Jewish state in New York? Like, are we gonna just, like, you know, move yeah. all of the Muslims and the Christians and just like? Well, no, but little- Israel is our
1: is our sixth borough, <laughs> <laughs> according to Hakeem Jeffries.
7: <laughs> uh, Israel love. I mean, oh my God, Hakeem just embarrasses me on a on a nightly basis. I don't understand. <laughs> Safe.
1: Also, I was told uh, my last trip home that I might be related to Hakeem Jeffries.
7: <laughs> oh no, <laughs> guys, we need to. Okay, it's time to unsubscribe. From- <laughs> yeah, yeah cancel can sort of Cry <laughs> about this. With my last Yeah, I was not
1: thrilled. Him. Apparently, he has some Ohio roots, and there's some connection. But <gasps> uh, we'll pretend that didn't happen.
7: Can we? Honestly, okay, okay. I mean, let's get over this. Maybe we can, can we weaponize this in some ways. I mean- <laughs>
1: I'm, I'm going to work on it. Once I once I nail down the connection, I'm going to see if I can use this in any in any way. <laughs> Someone says we need skip right. gates. Lol, Maggie. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah, um, so yeah. um, oh, oh, I was I was just gonna answer answer your question. A mm-hmm. uh, needy liberal cheers answered, so I thought I would answer. But I kind of have the same thing, same same answer. Um, so kind of gonna repeat that, but just gonna expand on it. But Israel, if you saying Israel has a right to exist. Just that framing, it just puts the framing way on the it, – it, it's almost – basically, it's like, do Jewish people have the, the right to their own state? They would if it meant not taking someone else's state, taking someone else's land. The whole – see, that's that's where it does – it gets – it changes the discussion mm. into – about oh do jewish people have the right to a state does israel have the right to exist is colonization bad is occupation bad is taking away is ethnic cleansing bad does Literally, palestine does, have a right to
1: exist
4: does palestine have the right to exist those those are the questions that should be asked if you can have a state to yourself if you if you want a place to be safe that is completely fine but you can't ethnically genocide i mean well eth- no, same thing but ethnically cleanse and colonize another people for mm-hmm. you to do that all you're doing is replacing your oppression with another person's oppression now you are the one being being the oppressor um but yeah that's that
7: and that's and the answer to that to question add a yeah. bit, just the last thing like 20 of israel today is not jewish like people mm. who live within the boundaries of israel exactly like, there. So what does that mean to have a Jewish state? That means that their rights are going to be lesser than Jewish people
4: mm-hmm.
7: happening today. So people who are even, even people of Arab or Palestinian descent who were born there the same year I was in, in the nineties. Okay. Mm-hmm. They don't have the same rights as Jewish citizens because their religion is different. Mm-hmm. Like, and I mean, how fucked up is that? Like. And, and, you know, just to show you how radicalizable the Israeli public even is. Like, um, again, the most pushback I've gotten to the one state solution has not been from Israelis. It's been from American Jewish people who maybe really? have been there twice. Yes. And it's, <laughs> obs- like, they want, it's almost like they want a fucking safe space. And I'm sorry, like, what would it, why would it bother you if a Palestinian has equal rights? Like, they're not gonna move in next to you. They're gonna live where they le- live, and they're gonna have the same rights. And they're not gonna live under martial law anymore. No, but the Jewish state, but I, I listened to songs when I was a baby, and like, blah, blah, blah. Like, I don't, like, at this point, it's affected people like me and my family, and Palestinians enough. Like, we need to not, like, we need to honestly like stop coddling people's feelings and say, like, I understand that Jewish people have gone through trauma. Like it's we're beyond that at this point. Like, you know, yeah, what's exactly. happening on the ground is is psychotic and it's we need we we need we need it to end.
4: Yeah, and also to, to add on to that. Oh sorry, Brie. Oh, um right. mm-hmm. but yeah, to, to add on to that, um he he was talking about Jewish Americans. Well, he, he brought the Jewish perspective, I'm going to bring the Christian perspective. Um, so to me, um, the most well, actually, this is just a fact that Christians in the United States are more supportive of Israel than Jewish people in the United States, literally like US, US Christians, like they like, so many of them just wholeheartedly support Israel, even though it's l- like it's, it's beyond me. Like they they just have this affinity to Israel, and it all has to do with like this crazy notion of like the end times of needing Jews to be there or whatever. It's it's crazy, and, and the thing that, Pete, that a lot of Christians don't even understand is that who are the Christians is that they're – Who are the Christians in Palestine? There are literally Christians in Palestine. I mean, mean, Christians in Israel, Palestine. And what are they? They're not Israelis. They're Palestinians. They're Palestinian Mm -hmm. Arab. And when people – so it's like Israel is not only oppressing a Muslim. See, I feel like there's a lot of Islamophobia that has to do with it with Mm -hmm. a lot of Christians. And they Mm -hmm. see, oh, Jewish people, Muslims will side with the Jewish people. And it's come to such a point that there's more Christians supporting Israel than even Jews supporting Israel because Christians are just being like, Oh well, we have more in common with Jewish people than Muslims, not even thinking that there's Christians involved and they're getting getting ethnically cleansed too, because they're on the side of the Muslims. I mean, well, isn't it also yeah, about yeah. like the the
1: rapture, or something, in, in right. and evangelicalism that they need.
7: That's right. What that's is what it? I was want, to, that's, that's, that's what I was trying to, to say. Down. Yes, that's right, guys. Let's not forget yes. the evangelicals. They want that. Yes, because that Jewish guys. Okay, let's do a Bible lesson so, <laughs> from the Book of Revelation. <laughs> the Book of Revelation says that a Jewish state of Israel has to exist in order for Jesus to finally, finally come back and save us. Only for, as, as some people pointed out in the chat, only 400 Jews will be saved, but that's okay. So that's why there are crazy evangelicals <laughs> like Mike Pence who, or George Bush, too. Like these crazy motherfuckers who get into high positions of power and they tell themselves, God put me here. I have to help Israel be a Jewish state because that's how Jesus comes back. 100%. Yep. There there's is another part. Uh, of, uh, the, the, prophecy, it's not over. They
1: Thanks, Jesus! <laughs>
7: Well, hey jesus didn't ask that. for this crap there also has to be guys you guys know in the chat you're amazing there. there's a red cow that has to show up so there have been like laboratories set up to try to engineer a red Stop. cow Stop! i'm not joking no 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 do so you see a lot it's not even coming from a jewish perspective a lot of the time it's like scary there's a lot of evangelicals with a lot of power i mean they just passed some laws in uganda <laughs> that are that are nuts um, yeah, so, but they're trying yeah. to hack Jesus' return. They're trying to yeah, hack it in a
1: lab. I can't. Yes,
4: that's what they're, <laughs> that so that they're going to do. That is what, what a lot of people Yeah, that's, that's what real. they're trying to do it's with real. Israel is they're trying to make Jesus come back. That is exactly what they're doing. They're literally supporting can't wait. the mm. ethnic cleansing, occupation, colonization, even the murder of Christian Palestinians
7: just so, so Jesus for a can cause. maybe come back. You see, <laughs> all of that ethnic cleansing, it had a point. You see, <laughs> I'm, 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 but it's real. Like the Jewish state of Israel has to exist between the borders of what is today Iraq and Palestine and parts of Jordan. Um, and it has to exist for for him to rise from the dead and resurrect. Cool, cool,
1: cool, 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 cool. This, this. Yeah. What can one say? You, 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 you both, Dylan and the Liberal Tears, have really elevated this conversation. I appreciate you both. Thank you. I, I'm going to do an experiment and maybe bring. I see that both Jonathan and Joshua all right, all right. take care. I have a, keep the faith. I'm going to bring. I'm going to bring Jonathan up, and then Joshua. I see you agitating in the chat, saying that this is like your subject too, and then I think maybe we might wrap. But Jonathan what's on your mind
8: uh yeah oh, one second. I gotta dump my cat out of my lap because he's being very pushy <laughs> uh, yeah I um, like I definitely I endorse uh, pretty much everything uh, you know the uh, the last two callers were saying uh, I remember back in the day uh, when I was uh, you know one of the when I was doing the APAC train campus advocate thing um, You know, I was basically uh, kicked out of of, uh, my campus organization on orders from Washington, uh, D.C., for advocating, you know, things like, say, reaching out to international solidarity movement to have a dialogue and marginalize some of the extremists that seem to be taking over. And, you know, I like them because they send people out to the Palestinian territories to do projects like building houses and things like that. They put their money where their mouth is. And you can have a conversation with people like that about the real things. And that was always the thing that was missing from a lot of the American discourse on Israel and Palestine. Like they were having a conversation about some sort of theoretical, ideological, abstract thing that wasn't real and concrete to them. And that's one of the things, like I remember wish, kind of wishing J Street had been around at that time. There was no J Street to run to until like a year after that happened to me. But uh, now looking back on it and, you know, looking at this guy, like he's kind of part of the same problem. Like they look like controlled opposition and like they, they haven't evolved at all in 20 years and, uh, or, you know, more like 18. But uh, in any case, like, you know, his knowledge of Israeli really uh, even recent history, politics, and culture is very, very spotty. Uh, his knowledge of geography is obviously lacking if he thinks, you know, a two state, you know, two separate, you know, states in that territory are a sustainable solution. You know, just in terms of the geography, the allocation of resources like water, uh, like infrastructure, mm-hmm. those two states would be entirely interdependent. And there there is no way to to do that sustainably. Like I could see that as a transition point. But part of that transition would have to be, uh, you know, like I said, there was there would be the end goal of having a one state solution, like a binational state experiment. But uh, it would have to be working towards that via negotiations, via, uh, you know, allocation of uh, land and water resources and things like that, kind of the way they planned for Oslo to be in terms of a staged negotiation but uh, ultimately it has to be one state there's no way to do anything else uh, aside from the moral repugnance of leaving one state where you you basically have apartheid in place because two million or it was like 1.7 million something like that uh like you know a fifth of the israeli population is mostly muslim non-jewish and you know at the end of the day a two-state solution would allow them to continue to oppress those two million people while those other 4 million live in their own state, that doesn't work either. And, you know, so like the fact is you would know this if you had been there, if you had really, I mean, he was there for a year. I studied there for two years, uh, but obviously he wasn't paying enough attention because, you know, knowing about the history of the politics, the geography and all those other contexts, um, you know, a lot of what he's saying is, is very impractical. Also, you know, his assessment of what's going on with the current situation was reasonably good, but I thought he also gave short shrift to the degree to which, uh, open fascism has taken root in Israeli politics. And this mm-hmm. is a huge part of the equation, like that notion of, of giving, uh, you know, I, like, I don't know what else to call, uh, Benavir, but, uh, but a Nazi, Like the guy has advocated the extermination of Palestinians and Netanyahu has agreed to basically give him a militia that is not answerable to the police or military hierarchy uh, at his own disposal to go run wild around what the West Bank. And uh, that's that's going to end up just fine, I'm sure. And, you know, there's nobody, nobody on the Israeli side of the equation believes Netanyahu is, uh, you know, when he says he's going to suspend the judicial reforms either. And, uh, you know, like he has been engaged in a fascist project for his entire career. And, you know, I think he brought up the route at one point. Uh, the route you know, has maybe, uh, you know, 15 percent of the population covered at this point. Uh, you know, back in the 1990s, it had 80 percent of the population covered. Like It was like two million people, like the entire working age population almost. And Netanyahu basically destroyed it by, uh, you know, with his healthcare reforms, introducing some semi-private insurance companies mm. as rivals and forcing them to separate their sick fund from requirements to be a member of the Histad route. And they lost a huge chunk of their membership and had to do a fire sale on the companies that they own, which included... Uh, you know, a lot of uh, public industries that employed a lot of people made profit, did well. Uh, but, uh, you know, we're, we're running a more kind of like the kind of way Richard Wolff says companies should be run. A lot more worker run enterprises, worker governed enterprises. Like those all went bye bye in the 90s under Netanyahu's first prime ministership. Like he's been engaged in this project for a long time. And it, like he has he long since took the mask off like years ago and started uh you know not just engaging in open economic fascism italian style but kind of unveiled the ethno-national stuff too and embracing people like Ben yeah i mean like th- this guy was close with Yigal mir the guy that assassinated yitzhak rabin like mm-hmm. this is not a joke these are very very dangerous people and they, their intentions, there's, there's, do not mistake it. These people do not have good intentions. If left to their own devices and left in charge of that country, no good is going to come of it.
1: So do you think there's an opportunity in here? I mean, I'm hearing some mixed things. Do you think there's an opportunity in here?
8: There are, and that's like the cultural part is, like I disagree with even his assessment of the Israeli polity because at their baseline, neoliberal Tears and I were talking earlier, and he even pointed out, like, even their right-wingers are okay with a lot of things that we would consider very socialist here. Like, there is a legacy of of socialism in that country. I learned my first socialist values at the knees of Israel's founding generation. And the neoliberal project, you know, has been ongoing. Uh, it was abortive. It started later in Israel because... Thatcherism failed miserably in the 80s and resulted in triple-digit inflation. The reason why the Israeli money is called the New Israeli Shekel is because the Likudniks ruined it in the 80s. Um, they would tell me that you would go to the store, you know, you check the price of a Frigidaire in the morning and you go to the store at, uh, on your lunch break and the price had changed. That's how bad it was. But, um, yeah, so, like, they like Netanyahu really started that project in earnest when he was finance minister in the early 2000s, and started uh, doing the slash and burn privatization and things like that, and it had the kinds of really profound, isolating effects. The you know the the destruction of of social cohesion that was present when I did my first stint there in Ben Gurion uh, University in 2000. Like there was a massive difference between then. And when I went back to Hebrew U into the 2005, 2006 Hurricane Katrina evacuation year uh, at Hebrew U, like it was a whole different country. Like the change was alarming. It was dark. It was uh, just those kinds of changes have such a profound effect on the social fabric there. Uh, And you also started seeing a much lower voter turnout. So I do think there is a robust left in that country. I think a lot of them feel powerless. A lack of a sense of self-efficacy, and a lot of them are staying home on election day. Like their turnouts used to be regularly eighty, eighty-five mm-hmm. percent, and now they're lucky if they hit fifty. Mm. And it's been that way for fifteen years at least.
1: You guys are you guys are you know informing the shit out of me, and I just really appreciate it. I don't I don't know what to tell you I I really glad you called in today, Jonathan.
8: I'm just glad I have that. You know, there's a lot of things rattling up on there, and never, never thought they'd be any use to anybody, really.
1: I mean, honestly, like I'm, I'm like really still just turning over and over in my head how uncritically so many people, including people like Bernie Sanders, are walking around presenting the two-state solution. I mean, as the most viable, like the good, the good option, like the what the reasonable people want. And I, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about how frustrating it is that there isn't more pushback and who would that pushback be coming from? And why is the conversation so stymied and in this kind of, I don't know which one of you said this, this weird kind of nineties place. It, it is, it is making me uncomfortable how informed and reasonable you lot sound and how different the conversation that we've had tonight here is from the one that you're most likely to get in the mainstream, even with people like Bernie.
8: And, you know, that's, that's something I found even frustrating in the early 2000s when I had less good politics. And that was one of the reasons I proposed having a dialogue with the international solidarity movement, which they started looking at me like I was mad and possibly dangerous. Like, those were the people that sent Rachel Corey over there. And, you know, they, like, it was, it's it's a well-known pro-Palestinian organization, but they do put their money where their mouth is and they have an idea of what's going on there. And one of the frustrations that I had always had, having been to Ben-Gurion University for that year first and coming here and hearing the way Americans discuss that subject, there is a lack of understanding that a country like Israel or the Palestinian territories could have as complex and rich and, um, and nuanced a social fabric and political fabric as the united states does and uh you know that there could be so much more to understand than these kind of simplistic melodramatic narratives and these reductionist stories that we tell about these things and that's the kind of thing that's that always seems to be missing from these conversations as they take place in the u.s is the understanding of that kind of of history and Geography and you know the, all the things that give any place its color and its character uh, are are relevant to that conversation, and that you need to understand these things to understand what would work and what wouldn't and why.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, look, thank you, thank you so much for calling in, Jonathan. I want to keep hearing from you guys. I don't have as much to contribute as as you lot do, obviously. Thank you again. I'm going go oh, to go to... Oh, but you
8: did. You did. You <laughs> contributed the Russell Brand thing, and I'm looking forward to hearing you broadcast from the UK.
1: <laughs> Wait, are you in the UK? No. Uh,
8: I, you're going to be in oh, the Oh, you're saying July. that I
1: should go to the thing, yeah.
8: <laughs> oh, we'll yes. See. That's
9: going to be a party.
1: You know how you, you know what I said after I got back from my French trip last year, that I was never flying seven hours again in my life? I just can't take it. <laughs> we'll see if I'll wrestle Russell, Russell up. I was like, I've done enough traveling in my life. I got COVID. I can't I'm not getting I'm never getting another long flight again for the rest of my life. But we'll oh, see. Well. Maybe Russell case, Brand can convince me.
8: In any case, feel better, get plenty of fluids and rest.
1: Thank you. We'll do. And to that end, I'm gonna go to Omar very quickly and then I'm gonna come to Joshua very quickly and we're gonna be out of here by Ten fifteen. I wasn't going to go to the gym, but a friend of mine from the campaign just sent me a photo where you have linked Apple watches. And he was like, you're lazy today. And I was like, I had food poisoning, but now I'm feeling pressure to get up and actually try to close my rings. So that's why I'm going to get out of here. But Omar, what's on your mind tonight?
10: Hey um, I was hoping to have uh, Jonathan or neoliberal tears to kind of check me on this. But um, the whole idea of terrorism, I think, has just jumped the shark. Um, I don't know if you know who Danny Dannon is. Uh, I don't think so. Yeah, he was the UN uh, ambassador for Israel. Uh, I don't know if he still is, but he was on Mehdi Hassan's uh, show when he was in Al Jazeera. And mm-hmm. he referred to Palestinians going to the ICC as diplomatic terrorism. I mean, <laughs> like you just can <laughs> Exactly, like with a straight face. So, like, terrorism has just become a useless term. There's also the Homeland Security uh, document that I think uh, Glenn Greenwald covered uh, three, two, two, three years ago, that uh, was all about uh, domestic violent extremists, and it also had like this really broad definition and didn't always involve violence. Uh, so, basically, criminalizing activists, uh, for animal rights, for environmental rights, uh, for all kinds of issues. So it, it's just become so fucking useless, uh, a term because it obviously doesn't include state terrorism, uh, because you know, mm-hmm. when you have power, you have the privilege of wielding violence and ending people's lives. Um, but yeah that that kind of leads me to uh how oh, that's connected to israel. israel and uh i i would love to hear max blumenthal talk about this i remember this interview that he had done about uh how terrorism became such a focus of foreign and domestic uh policy and that uh netanyahu was I think after the death of his brother, he was pushing for it to be a big focus, and I don't remember if it was like called the Jonathan project or something like that, but he was behind this uh, and 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 this whole like um, industry around this islamophobic industry has kind of blossomed from from that from that seed that he planted so it like I don't have as much hope about you know change coming from within. Um, I've never been to Israel. And I, I, with a name like Omar, I don't feel like going anyway. Mm. But Max uh, Blumenthal has talked about polls about younger generations just having really extreme racist views against Palestinians where they don't Mm -hmm. want, like a majority of them don't want to share a classroom with a Palestinian and so, there's also the military-industrial complex that's part of Israel, and sur- and the surveillance industry that uses Palestinians as guinea pigs. And so, there's financial incentives to keep the apartheid going, to keep Gaza an open-air prison. And
1: yeah,
10: yeah. yeah anyway,
1: I, I, de- I definitely take your point about how. Look, I, I I mean, I just I feel two ways about this. Obviously, people are exploiting the word terrorism, but people have been doing it. Like, it, it frustrates me to be upset about it. And I don't, I'm not talking about Glenn here, because I think that he very consistently probably was cr- critical of the way that the word has been used to justify state action by the United States, war on terror, all of that. Like, he's, he was there pushing back at the time. So this isn't about Glenn, of course. But, like, my I, I'm frustrated with the idea that the state creates a frenzy Around the idea of terrorism And that we have to go to war against terrorism And Conservatives weaponize The idea of terrorism To push a conservative agenda And then eventually like 20 years later Some liberals or leftists Start to Also weaponize the word Also exploit the word To highlight what's being done To their communities And now suddenly I'm supposed to be mad at it Like I I, I agree that there's this kind of linguistic escalation that's not especially helpful and that is a distraction but I guess I just can't bring myself to care enough to ever say anything about it is what I'm saying. If someone wants to walk around talking about stochastic terrorism God bless. Like I I've never use the word and I don't anticipate using the word but I don't know there, there is something about this like um, chicken and the egg of it all that I find to be a little irritating. It, it, it's kind of like when people are talking about the woke wokeness and someone like Bethany will say wokeness is trying to create hierarchies of oppression and that we really should just treat everybody equally. And it's like, ma'am, the whole point of there being African American history classes or CRT or any of these studies is because we lived in a country that had de jure segregation and and legal slavery. And we're trying to undo that. And pretending like the first thing that happened was people trying to talk about equity and inclusion or something. And that's that, that like, Choosing where to start historically when you're understanding these words and terms can be a really powerful tool to neuter the initial, you know, the the, the, the side that I would agree, with, you know, the to just to distort reality, should I say? And so, so I guess yeah. that's that's my only hesitation. Like, would I advise someone to use the word? No. Am I going to go out of my way to like complain about it? No. Do I think that some like. personality being mad at them editing Roald doll books? No. I'm much more angry at Bank of America using a Pride Parade sponsorship to cover up its investments in dirty energy or whatever. You know what I mean?
10: Yeah. Yeah. The, I mean, the ethnic cleansing that happened here, the, the, the racist, the racial laws, I mean, inspired the Nazis. And, like, we point the finger at Nazis saying that they're u- a unique evil, but we inspired them.
1: Yeah. Yeah, we 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 did.
4: Yeah.
1: I mean, not us, Omar, not you and me. <laughs> but some other Americans did. <laughs> All right, thanks Omar. We are at the Thanks for calling in, keep the faith. I'm going to pull up Joshua real quick, Joshua, because I know that you were really eager to get in here and say some things.
9: Hi, Brianna. I apologize. I know it's late and you have to get going, but please just give me a moment so Yeah. Um uh, I think our biggest problem with this subject as Americans is how the problem's framed. So the way it's always framed is, does Israel have a right to exist? Do the Jewish people have a right to a state? I think that framing is designed to trap people into logically arriving at, well, of course, Israel has a right to exist. But that's not really what the issue is. The real issue is uh, what type of state exists over that piece of real estate with people in it because here's the thing before israel became a state eight percent of the population of that territory was jewish for hundreds of years so the issue is not whether jewish people were allowed to live there because they've always lived there they lived there for hundreds of years long before uh the balfour declaration during the ottoman empire they lived there so it's not about whether jews are allowed to live there it's about what type of state exists there Well, once we figure that out, then we know what the problem is. If you replace the word Jewish with the word white, we know exactly what type of state it is. And we know what the problem is. How they frame it is how they trap people and convince them, oh, we have to have a two-state solution. Oh, anyone that's speaking against Israel is automatically Mm anti-Semitic. How they frame it is the problem.
1: Yeah, I, I think I think that's, you know, a good point. And that's why I don't know where I, I first heard someone flip it as, you know, do Palestinians have a right to exist? But, you know, I said it in the episode and I I think that that is such a useful reframing um, for exactly the reasons that you've uh, articulated.
9: And you brought up what can the United States do? Like, it's, there's too many problems that people can point to. What can we do as Americans? To me... The United States has the biggest leverage compared to any country in the world to do something about Israel because we're the last country in the world that supports Israel. When we veto any resolution that criticizes Israel or we provide so much aid to them on an annual basis as 3% of their GDP,
3: Mm.
10: we have
9: all the leverage. We have all the cards. So the first thing we do is condemn Israel and declare them an apartheid state. The second thing is to give them an ultimatum to say you have to give full citizenship and rights to the entire Palestinian diaspora. And if you don't, then we'll bring on sanctions, not just cut off aid, but bring on sanctions to the level of Iran and Russia. Mm. If Russia was doing to the Palestinians what they're if Russia did to Ukraine, what Israel is doing to Palestinians and stayed for 50 years, then we're having the same conversation because this whole thing goes back to 1967. There is resolutions that still on in the U.N. that Israel invaded a part of Jordan, invaded the Sinai and uh, invaded the Gaza Strip and occupied those territories. And there's still UN resolutions that Israel and the United States ignores. Yeah. Uh, and I think that the United States using its power to say you have to grant Palestinians the right for citizenship and uh, allow their diaspora to return to their state if we don't believe in democracy, I mean, if supposedly, if we believe in democracy and the right for self-determination, then that's the most basic thing we do.
1: Yeah. 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 I, I agree. I agree, Joshua. Um, that that feels right. And once again, mm-hmm. I'm just really struck by how robust and you know useful this um, conversation feels. And how much kind of agreement there is between all of you yeah. speakers and how, like, anathema this conversation is to the real world, to the mainstream well, media. Well, this so
9: opinion I th- is not popular in West Virginia where I'm at. So, oh, origin. we got a West Virginian in the house. Yeah, yeah. I'm originally from Louisiana, but uh, I live in West Virginia. and I'm uh, part Mexican, part Iranian. So, you know. I don't look like anyone around here. Oh, fascinating. (laughs) How did
1: you, um, why did you move to West Virginia?
9: I want to connect with a family friend to work with him in the banking industry. Mm. So I I think it's kind of funny. Sometimes I introduce myself as West Virginia's only Marxist banker. (laughs) I'm just like, I'm very much aware of the conflict of interest or the hypocrisy, (laughs) but fuck it, I embrace it
1: so joshua i hope you caught it again i bet we have a lot of fun things to talk about
9: i'd love to as well
1: all right keep the faith joshua thank you again you too all right guys that was like a really terrific session i gotta tell you i was laid low and not really feeling like peeling myself out of bed to do this um but i'm really glad i did thank you so much um for educating me the way y'all do i learned so much from this podcast i just it really feels like i should be paying you or something somehow we'll figure it out uh thanks to everyone and thank you for all of the suggestions y'all made on patreon for upcoming guests i will be combing through that very um closely you guys make the best suggestions thanks again take care of yourselves keep the faith i'll see you on thursday hey.
0: Hey. I wish I was a lion in the tall grass. I wish I had a pilot and a podcast. I wish I had a strong donkey that can holler ass and travel with portable speakers playing bars, scans. I wish I had a million dollars. I wish I had a million albums. I wish I had a million problems. That way I couldn't pinpoint all one million outcomes. I wish I found a genie lamp. I wish them girls gave me them sugar like Beanie Man. I wish I was a comedian, late night sitcom syndicated on TV land. I wish this well had water in it. These kids are stealing all my pennies. Focused on my wealth, you can help me wish, but I would rather wish for help is like, It's like, I wish, I wish, every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, and every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, that every time we love and it feels just like this It feels just like this It feels I wish I had a time machine Wish I had a better rhyming scheme. Wish that I could speak to giants after climbing up a green stalk that grew up my limo I wish that I could spread my wings, huh? I wish that I had seven limbs yeah. That way I'd hold on to everything And laugh when I hear people wishing for the better things I wish I spoke fluent Spanish Dímelo, dímelo At least I kinda understand it <laughs> Wish that I could throw the deuce like gambit And get so large I could play pool with the planets yeah. I wish I was an astronaut I wish I knew more classic rock <laughs> Focused on myself You can't help me wish, but I would rather wish for help It's like, it's like I wish, I wish, that every time we love it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, every time we do it, it feels just like this. I wish, I wish, every time we move it, it feels just like this. It feels just like this. It's just—it's like, like Kudo Duncan. We would turn some dumb shit into something that got everybody wild and our circumference, make big assumptions. So they nothing new. Fuck a mind, fuck a you. How did you do?